Welcome to another episode of Health Creators. This is Liv, and I'm joined here today with Emily Rodite, founder and CEO of Sapphire Neuro. So, Emily, can you tell us more about your journey and why you decided to start Sapphire? For sure. And before we begin, thanks so much for having me. It's really good to be able to share our journey um, as well. So uh, I'm Emile, originally born and raised in Lithuania and uh, grew up there. And then when I was 18, I left to the U.S. to Harvard to do my undergraduate, which at the time I didn't know what it was, would be in. Um, kind of all throughout my high school career, I was always very pas passionate and fascinated with the human body, but also really excited about the impact that that can have on mm. people's lives. And what I was told is that that means medicine for me. Um, and in Lithuania, similarly to the UK, um, if you choose to study medicine, you start as an 18 year old, very bright and fresh eyed and oftentimes with very little experience of the real world. And so I was actually got this very big treat given my way of being able to go to the US uh, for my undergrad, where really you start from a very open liberal arts kind of mm. curriculum where you get to learn anything that is interesting to you and they'll then delve deeper. And for me, the intention was, you know, I will go in, learn a lot about the world and end up in medicine in grad school. And so I came in and one of the first courses I took was, you know, a mix of biology, psychology, neuroscience. And at the time when I left, Lithuania didn't really have neuroscience, even as a field. Mm -hmm. And I was just fascinated by the idea that, you know, you can study the brain as an organ, as an entire subject. That felt very yeah. strange to me because physics is about, you know, principles of the world. Chemistry is about, you know, materials and substrates and all that. And neuroscience felt weird. Like, why don't we have just like an entire science about legs, but we have one about brains? Um, and it put me into an interesting spin where I started seeing neuroscience as like something really fascinating because we get to learn about other people around us, about ourselves through it, about other species mm -hmm. and, you know, about the differences between them. And I just got really excited about the idea of studying the brain. And so for the next four years, kind of an undergrad, I would be in between neuroscience labs, kind of everything from psychiatry and trying to understand when things go wrong and then to understanding psychology. And while I was doing that, I worked actually four jobs at a time when I was an undergrad. Mm -hmm. um, so my main jobs would be, I was a tour guide in the Harvard Art Museums. I um, tutored students and uh, the other one that was the most meaningful to me was I was an emergency medic. So for about half a year, I trained to be an emergency medic mm. and then towards the end started leading Harvard's Emergency Medical Service, which has about 90 professionals. And what that means is, unlike the UK, you train just to be an emergency medic on the field and see patients in real time, which I always thought was my dream. And it was really good. But one of the things that I realized is I was expecting that as an emergency medic, you go out there and you see everyone bleeding out and it's, mm. you know, emergencies, everything you go and you kind of save the day. You're such, just such a hero. And I guess discovery number one is that most things are very boring before emergency hits. So you really need to be able to make decisions very fast, which mm. I think serves you really well as an entrepreneur later down the line. Um, but I think number two was that, especially as I got more into the higher levels of, you know, having worked for multiple years, is that um, over 50% of our patients were actually psychiatricals. There weren't people broken yeah. their leg, uh, having broken their legs or something else. It was actually people being in having active suicidal thoughts and suicidal plans, people having been raped, people, um, you know, and being this solutional. Was in, in the emergency rooms? So this was on yeah. the streets. We would get a call, and okay. then as emergency medics, we would show up. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
And I think that was just shocking because that's not mm. what I expected. And because we're not really trained to do that. Like, you know, 95% of your training is how to manage bleeds and stuff like that. Only 5% of training is like, if anything psychiatric comes up, just like support them and be around. Yeah. But like, what do you do in that situation? Someone's calling you like, I don't know, with like a potentially very serious psychiatric condition where they would potentially end their lives. How do you, how did you deal with that? Yeah. yeah, I mean, you deal with it as you're trained, which is you don't do anything. Mm -hmm. You show up, you're there for them, you protect them from themselves, mm -hmm. you protect them from other people if they're a danger from other people, but there's very little that you can do at that moment. And I think that question that you're asking is actually key because that made me really fascinated with prevention because mm -hmm. I'm like, should I've been to the other side, you know, where, you know, it's already happened and you have nothing to do and, you know, if you could do something, then it would probably need to be a pretty high intervention. Like imagine being in the active state of wanting to die by suicide. Mm. Like, you know, it has to be something that com completely takes you out of that zone. And so because of that, like really that's what drove me to then, you know, work for a little bit in uh, public health and kind of global health as well. Trying to understand, you know, what are the predictors of these outcomes? How can we manipulate them and change them so that people don't end up in those situations? Because one way is like, you know, if you have 100 people who end up in that situation, one way is to help 90% of them. Yeah. Or the other perspective is like not let 90% of them get to that state. Mm, and I was like, like preventative. Exactly. And I was like, you know, both are very important. But what I'm seeing right now is that we don't have anything to like really react to it in a scientific way and do solutions after the fact too much. Um, we're in the moment. So maybe we can work more on prevention. And so, yeah, so then I kind of went into that side and, you know, kind of navigating, seeing that reality of the world and knowing that for most psychiatric things, we can barely do anything after the fact. And at the same time, being a neuroscientific researcher, I got really fascinated with the role that the brain and preventing, you know, the brain being in a different state uh, can do to the world. So like, can we make things, interventions, mm -hmm. technology that make our brains not progress to the stage where it's too late? I feel like there's always such a big divide between the psychological and psychiatry component of neuroscience and then like the neurochemical part. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they're almost like two completely different camps where, um, where they don't really meet in the middle as much as you think they would. Or they should. Or yeah. they should. Yeah. Yeah. So I know that you have some background in neuro as well. And mm -hmm. I think, I think the crazy thing is like, honestly, neuro and then stepping away, our understanding of the brain mm. is in its baby steps. Like it's a fetus. We know so little yeah. about the way the brain works. And I think because of that, historically people would choose biology or chemistry as a field or, you know, computation or something. And then neuroscience emerges this field that was like, huh, how about we apply all of these other things to neuroscience? Yeah. And that's what led to the neurobiologists. They're really biologists, just happened to be studying the brain, you know? Yeah. And that's what led to computational neuroscientists, really computer scientists, but just decided, you know, to, to do something related to the mm. brain. And what that has led to is really that neuroscience is just such a chimeric field that has like, honestly, if anyone tells me they're a neuroscientist, I would assume we share probably 5% of the same education because I'm like, it probably means that you yeah. understand the brain, but actually a lot of people would just have very diverse mm. meanings on what they mean by that profession. Um, and I think, as you say, it's still very much not coming together, uh, but I think it should because ultimately in order to understand such a complex structure as the brain, which gives us our willingness to live, 
our mm. willingness to make friends, our willingness to go on podcasts and share our stories with mm. the world and our willingness to build new things. Like we will need to understand the biology of it. We'll need to understand the underlying chemistry. We'll need yeah. to understand the network science and we'll need to understand the complex computations that happen there all the time. And yeah, I think we just need to work closer together. So to kind of tie it back to your question, um, I think to me, the way I understand neuroscience and what still makes me excited to wake up every morning beyond like, you know, building an innovation in that mm. field is really the fact that to me, psychiatry needs to change and it is yeah. in the process of changing. And I work every day with very innovative psychiatrists. And to me, psychiatry is the study of the brain when things go awry. Mm. And I think that's still, it's, I, I'm never going to give a satisfying explanation because we don't know what a normal brain is. We don't really know what an abnormal brain necessarily is. But what we do know is that there are states of the brain when we do not function optimally for ourselves and for the people around uh, us. And how can we essentially optimize that brain health? So to me, psychiatry is primarily about the brain health part of it. Um, but it is just an application where neurobiology matters, neurochemistry matters, network science matters and, as well. And, and you focus on PMS. Um, I never really considered PMS as a psychiatric condition. Yeah. Um, I almost saw it more like a symptom, um, you know, that many women get when they're on their periods. Yeah. So you're right mm -hmm. in a kind of both of the statements that you said in that um, I think I forget who was it saying, but I was recently at a conference on women's health and someone made the statement that, you know, mostly as we learn about things um, initially, like, you know, people were like, oh, women have hysteria. And then over time, mm -hmm. they figured out that it was depression. And so oftentimes when we learn about things we didn't know before, we start from a stage of syndromes. So we call things, you know, people have this thing and those are all the symptoms that they have. And that's a syndrome. Um, and a syndrome essentially just means that it's a combination and compilation of symptoms. And if you look across women's health throughout their lifetime, most things we still understand at a syndrome level. What that means is like when we think of PMS, which stands for yeah. premenstrual syndrome, really, you know, PMS to you might mean that before your period, you get irritable, angry, maybe sad. For someone else like me, it might mean that like, you know, I actually just become extremely sad and unable to move mm. and don't want to do anything. And, you know, I'm a very different person from the way I normally am. But both of your and my symptoms would fall under that same definition of PMS because we still don't understand what really causes it. So mm. it's still like very early in that journey. And so it is a diagnosis. So you can get diagnosed with premenstrual syndrome. And actually, even though most women would think the same as you and wouldn't think it's necessarily a diagnosable condition, mm. about one in three women experience PMS symptoms every single period that they have. Um, and for some, it's extremely severe, which is called premenstrual dysphoric disorder, PMDD, where they would regularly have suicidal thoughts and extreme mm. depressive symptoms as well. And that's, you know, in the international classification of disease as well. Um, but it was only recognized in 2015. So it's still very yeah. fresh. Why, why did you decide to work on PMS of, um, of all the, you know, neuropsychiatric conditions? Great question. Um, a lot of reasons, but I think a couple are related to kind of parts of the journey that I spoke to before in that I think that we stand to lose a lot more as a society if we only address things after the fact rather than preventatively. Mm. And for women, we've always 
we have, I believe, neglected to do research and neglected to develop solutions to prevent bad things from happening. So everyone's you know, sad about postpartum depression and sad when a woman dies by suicide after postpartum, mm. but no one's developing really specific solutions for postpartum necessarily. Now they are, but it's still new. And similarly for PMDD or PMS, like, you know, women struggle every month. And you know, suicidality is the extreme case, but does it need to be that bad for us to care about women's well-being and productivity and just you know, participation mm. in society? Because if I think more deeply, is that the way that we talk about women's mental health is still at the level that we spoke about depression 20 years ago. You know, most women would be like, oh my God, I'm just PMSing, it's my fault, maybe I'm more sensitive than other women around me. And the point is like, that's what people used to say about depression, that it's the person's fault or it's something about them. And now we have moved to thinking about it more sophisticatedly. We're like, no, your brain actually changes. Um, so I want to recognize that in terms of like a more philosophical perspective. And then finally, the brains of women with premenstrual dysphoric disorder or more severe forms of PMS do look extremely similar to those of depressed patients in yeah. the luteal phase in the week leading up to your period. So like neurobiologically, neuroimaging based, you know, we know those brains look different and they make us do different decisions as women. And that affects our ability to participate That affect in, in like public life. It affects our ability to live our lives to the fullest, be members of families and stuff like that. So you've built this headband for PMS. Um, how does it work? And, and why, why did you land on, on this um, design? Yeah, for sure. So the headband you're referring to, this is one of our older models, but it's essentially a wearable headband that's controlled uh, via Bluetooth and has an app to it. And essentially, it stimulates two different parts of the brain, um, one for relieving the cognitive symptoms associated with yeah. PMS and one for uh, relieving the symptoms associated with pain in the back. And so, so you just wear it like this and then what that plugs in from the back. So no, so it actually just connects via Bluetooth um, okay. and then it essentially uh, yeah. releases like small pulses of electricity over 20 minutes. So you wear it for 20 minutes for the five days leading up to your period. And then it, it prevents you from getting PMS when you have your period. Exactly. Or, or in the week leading up to your period. Yeah. And then it prevents you to being sensitive to pain when your period comes because pain is obviously Ooh. a physical aspect, but it's also an experience of pain. And so we block the experience part of it. So we make yeah. sure that your body is ignoring essentially a lot of the pain signals that come from, um, from you know, the menstrual pain as well. Um, but could you not use this in other chronic pain conditions? Because if we look at chronic pain, it's usually that you've created a system in your brain that causes you to you know, experience chronic pain, right? Absolutely. And that's actually where a lot of the research that we've built the headband on is based on. So research on depression on the mm. cognitive side and research on chronic pain and especially fibromyalgia on the pain side. But one thing that we realized is that even though it is a very effective application for blocking that perception mm. of pain, it's relatively short lasting. Like you would need to wear it relatively yeah. often to get that constant chronic pain relief. And what I think we discovered that's really unique about women's health is that literally menstrual pain and PMS symptoms are the only predictable cognitive and pain symptoms mm. that can ever occur because all the other forms of chronic pain, you cannot anticipate when that happens. And you know, when it happens, you need a much stronger intervention to bump it down. Yeah. But if we can do it preventatively, because we ask you to wear the headband for the five days before your period, so we actually essentially reduce the pain ahead of it coming, yeah. and therefore we're able to be much more effective with a much smaller signal. And I just can't think of another, another kind of cognitive uh, condition or a pain condition that is as predictable as that, apart from 
menopause and postpartum. Like, you know, those are other predictable ones. How, how many women actually get PMS? So it's expected that about 30% of, really? uh, yeah, one in three women yeah. is expected to get at least one of the menstrual pain symptoms. Mm. And actually, if, if sorry, PMS symptoms. And then if you add menstrual pain to it, probably 90% of women are expected Whoa. to have at least one of them. There was actually a study of over 32,000 women in the Netherlands. Mm. And what they discovered is that 82% um, of women said that they experienced at least one of those symptoms. And on average, even if you average the ones who said they didn't, women lose about 23 and a half days of productivity every single year just no because of those way. symptoms, which sounds, I don't know if it sounds a lot or a little, but it is almost the same amount of holidays that people get in the UK. So if you think that you lost that all the time, you'd rather take it as a month off, you know, or, you know, get some extra days as well. But um, yeah, it's much more prevalent than you think. Um, obviously, severity differs. And Ari, and your question before was about why does design and really, it's that you can fit it into your lifestyle regardless of the severity of your symptoms. Like, even if it's just you making worse decisions and, you know, you mm. can kind of get on with it, it's still something you can do. It's giving women back the control over their bodies and not just being like, I know I'll feel like crap on Thursday and there's nothing I can do about it. Awesome. So you decide to build Samfire. And is it your first time, you know, being founder and CEO of a company? Yeah. Sort of. Um, so about two years ago, me and my co-founder, Alex, founded Samfire. And that's the first time I founded a um, for-profit company. And it's the first time I've built um, a VC-backed company. Mm. So we're now backed by VC as well as a lot of grants from the UK government and stuff like that. But it, is, it was my first experience doing something like that. However, before that, I had uh, co-founded an NGO in Lithuania called mm. Integrative Neuroscience Association where we had over 500 members and they were all professional neuroscientists uh, from across the world, um, primarily focused on improving education and interventions mm. in Lithuania. So I had experience leading the emergency medical service at Harvard, which was you know, another company I had taken over and building an NGO, but this is my first time building a for-profit company. And what do you think is the number one thing you would advise um, you know, current entrepreneurs or people who want to be entrepreneurs to do, um, you know, as founder and CEO and do an example. Of that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it's a very good question because you make it narrow down to one thing. And I think that there's a lot of other tips I would give if someone approached me about building the company, but I think it all has to start from the overarching tip, which is don't be afraid mm. and probably stay naive for us a little bit. Um, because I think that when we started the company, I think we knew that something like this needed to be built because honestly, yeah. women don't really have alternatives. And we saw a path there and we imagined the product. And honestly, when we imagined it, it was literally electrodes being put on women's brains, barely attached. And they were like, mm. just give it to me. We don't care about the design. And obviously over time, we started caring a lot about the design, but it, it was a vision that we saw and that no one else saw. And you know, I'm a scientist. I wasn't, you know, set out to build a hardware firm or mm. software product, you know, plus community offering and all of that. Um, but I think we just realized that that's what needed to be done. And looking back, I think had I known how many things need to be done, because this is a medical device that is regulated and all that, I probably would have gotten scared. Uh, mm. And probably had I spoken to someone, they would have been like, oh, these are all the things you need to do. And I would have been like, I've never done them before. Um, but yeah, I think for entrepreneurs, I would always give the 
encouragement, just don't be scared and don't be your biggest blocker. Like you're going to find so many challenges along the way. Just don't be one of them to yourself Um, because it gets hard and it's, it still gets difficult, but I'm glad that we um, dreamt big and that we just felt like it was something that needed to happen. And um, I guess on the other side, what do you think is the number one thing not to do as you know, a founder, CEO, and you an example of when this happened, um, you know, maybe some chaos that was caused. Yeah, that's a good question. There's a lot of things. I think um, I'm framing it in terms of things to do, but I will try to answer your question of what not to do because whenever you do something that you weren't supposed to do, you look back and you're like, now I do it very differently. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think it's when we started. Um, we literally didn't really know where to start. This was the first time us mm. building something like that. And a lot of the founders, or not a lot, but some of the founders we spoke to, they were like, you know, if you got investment to build this vision of yours, you should just pay people who know how to do it better. They will build it for you. You know, it's a hardware device. Just pay a hardware company and get it done, done with it and et cetera. And at the time, I felt very uncomfortable with it because I'm like, you know, we're building this product for women for the first time. Literally, no one has done it mm. before. Like, literally, no one else knows how to do it. Like, neither do we or how to build a product, but we know what women want and we know how it should work and all of that. So we decided to take the hardware in-house, which was actually a pretty controversial decision at that time. And it caused a lot of chaos, including the fact that I had a 3D printer in my house um, that would print nonstop literal iterations of this that now looking back, I'm like, I can't believe we ever thought that that would work. Um, And, you know, we were doing a lot of research on materials and everything ourselves. And looking back, it was a chaotic four months. Like, you know, we were kind of trying to build something that we didn't have enough experience with and trying to really just understand what was happening. The reason I'm saying that now I would frame it as advice is I think it made it led us to a much better product because I knew the ins and outs and I knew the questions that I had trying to build something from scratch. And I could challenge the people who knew better when we started working with other people who could help us out, mostly just more professional employees, though we did build uh, all of the device in-house. But yeah, I think it could have saved me. I guess I would encourage not to overestimate uh, your powers, but I would still encourage people to definitely never outsource your first iterations of the product, especially the like more Mm -hmm. advanced MVPs. Because I think even now that I work less directly on product because it is now much more advanced and manufacturable and all of that, I think I still know the basic components of it and I can still, you know, kind of disentangle it and fully put it together. And I think actually a lot of founders of hardware companies can't. And I think that's important. Um, Interesting. So you actually had a 3D printer in your house and you were like printing different parts. and It was super loud. It was super loud. Um, Yeah. Well, yeah, it was funny. um, I guess... Did you have to, you know, was it a whole new learning curve when you were like, okay, I'm going to build neurotechnology? Because what does that mean? Like, it's not like in neuroscience we learn, you know, how to actually manufacture technology that that touches the brain, right? I wish. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it's it's honestly wild and no one really uh, knows how to do it. I think one thing that I learned is that everyone technical talks in acronyms and it doesn't freaking help if you're Mm. a newbie. Like I remember people like dropping words, even like words like PCB or like, you know, um, OEM or whatever, like people Mm. keep dropping words and it's just very difficult to participate in conversations. Um, So, yeah, I think I think honestly, 
what helped me, and I don't know if I should frame this as advice, this is what helped uh, me, is we set out to create a neurotechnology product, but then we broke down, and what were we really creating is a wearable device. Okay, yeah. you've broken it down a little bit. What are the components? You have an app that controls it and a physical thing. Cool. You know, imagine I'm like a second grader doing a project and I need to create a headband. What mm -hmm. would I do first? Probably some cutout. We did freaking cutouts. Then we're like, cool, like it needs to be a bit more advanced. We need to put something on our head. We actually bought, went out and bought a bunch of headbands and tested it on a bunch of women. We're like, you know, what are the comfort points? Turns out like here is a really important point because a lot of women feel uncomfortable if there's anything behind their ears, if they're not used to wearing glasses and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So we tested a lot of things from very first principles. And I think that, you know, I don't know how many people listening um, are planning to build neurotech companies, but I actually think this works for you trying to build any new product. Yeah. It's like try to break it down into things that you understand, because I bet that if you can break it down into things that you don't, uh, that you understand, then, you know, you probably don't understand what you want to build, um, you know. Um, so I found that very helpful to think of building neurotechnology as if I was building whatever other thing I was building, including yeah. the principles of what happened to be neurotechnology. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think you're right in that if you have outsourced the, those first product iterations, I'm not sure how you can really iterate as well, because often it really does need to come from the founders, right? For sure. Um, uh, and in the beginning, you don't really know exactly what you're building. Yeah. And so you're just going to end up with a lot of bad relationships with subcontractors because you are giving them unclear instructions and they're not going to figure out like how to build your products. Right. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. And I actually yeah. would push that even further. Like, actually, mm. you don't know what you want to build. Yeah. You have a exactly. clear vision, but actually your users, even your users actually don't know mm. what they want. So you have to get enough opinions, enough tests and trials and errors. Yeah. But like, actually, like, honestly, user is key. Like for us, actually, the design of our head headband was voted on by our um, like Sampire Fellowship, which was a community of women helping us build. Because in the beginning, we're like, cool, from our functional requirements, we can do these different designs. Mm -hmm. What do you think is coolest? What do you think is like, you know, cool and cute enough for you to wear in public, but also not necessarily extremely noticeable. So something that you could hide from like, let's say men or wear in the office if you chose mm. to, et cetera. And so I think honestly, the users taught me more than anyone else about how to yeah. build such a product because women were like, honestly, can be a very effective thing, but if it doesn't look good, I won't be able to walk out with it. If it has wires, it will look weird. Like mm. honestly, they told us how to build our product because they told us what they needed. And you know, we were there to listen. And um, just on to, you know, maybe the a final question from me. What is the number one impact you want to leave on the world with Sapphire Neuro? I think I really want every woman to feel that her voice counts. Um, and I want women to feel that they deserve technology and they deserve mental health care, which I don't think they have had for a very long time. Um, and I want more women to build in general, build whatever, because chances are that women are more likely to build for women. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's just, honestly, women's health just needs so, so much more innovation that whatever you want to build in there, probably there's a need for it. Um, yeah. And that's the impact I want to leave.